baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley and welcome back to a weekly chat about what's going on with the Atlanta Braves and of course other things happening across the world of baseball. Been a busy week for the Braves. They're back out on the road. They've had some pretty good results for the most part, winning a series in Washington, splitting a series, a little bit bittersweet with the Chicago Cubs. And of course, a lot of comings and goings this week, a little bit of all-star news, a lot of stuff to get to in this episode of From the Diamond and we'll try to cover it all. And we're also going to take a look at some of the other stories happening across baseball on the business side of things. And to do that, my friend Maury Brown from Forbes is going to join the show. We'll talk about that crazy two-city plan that the Tampa Bay Rays are currently trying to figure out. Could they be the Tampa Bay Rays and the Montreal Rays at the same time in the same season? We'll ask Maury that question and how exactly it would work. And, of course, we'll talk about that London series that's going on between the Red Sox and the Yankees, what that means for the globalization of the game, the marketing side of the game, all of the impacts that that series has, of course, on the world of baseball. And we'll try to tackle a few other topics as they come up as well. So look forward to chatting with Maury Brown on this episode of From the Diamond as well. If you enjoy what you hear, I invite you to subscribe to the podcast. It's out every week on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave a rating and a review. I really appreciate those. Keep them rolling in. And be sure you're following along on Twitter. You can find the show at FromTheDiamond underscore. And I am at Grant McCauley. That's G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. And FromTheDiamond.com. That's where you can find not only every episode of the podcast, but also some of the other things that I'm working on. I put a new article up this week, sizing up the Braves' offense at the halfway point. A lot of cool projection stats, numbers, and figures as the Braves reach that 81-game mark on Wednesday in Chicago. That means we've got half a season to go, and if you start looking at the numbers this offense is putting up, it could be historically good in franchise history, and I think it's just kind of all part of one bigger picture of an extremely offensive year across all of baseball. Braves are doing their part, and they're one of the best offenses going in the National League, if not all of baseball right now, with their absolutely stellar month of June. So be sure to check that out. Sizing up the Braves offense at the halfway point, you can find it at fromthediamond.com. Let's get our show started with the week that was for the Atlanta Braves and tackle the news and notes around the team. And we'll start with the good news. The Braves are in first place. They've got a nice tidy lead over the Phillies. It's been somewhere between four and six games for about a week or two now. The Phillies were able to handle business against the New York Mets and shave a little bit off of that lead over the last few days. And we'll see if the Braves can go up to New York and beat up on the New York Mets and perhaps add a little bit back to that lead before the Braves and Phillies meet again, starting a new series on Tuesday at SunTrust Park. The other good news as of Thursday is that all-star voting is now in the books. That means you will not be getting assaulted by that on social media anymore. All of those campaigns are done. The all-star starters were named. And among those for the National League, Freddie Freeman will get the start at first base. And Ronald Acuna Jr. earned a starting spot in the outfield. He will be flanked by Christian Yelich and Cody Bellinger. So that's quite the outfield for the National League. 
Ronald Acuna Jr. becoming the youngest Brave to earn a starting nod on an all-star squad, so yet another accolade for him. Meanwhile, for Freeman, this might become an annual occurrence. It's certainly back-to-back years. 31 runs knocked in in the month of June. If you're campaigning for the all-star team, having a red-hot month of June is probably a good way to get some attention from not just Braves fans, but baseball fans in general as they go through the voting process. And Freddie Freeman putting himself in the MVP discussion. Mentioned Yelich and Bellinger. Certainly they're up there. Josh Bell of the Pirates is the guy that Freeman had to edge out to win that starting spot at first base for the NL. He's going to be in that MVP discussion if he keeps up his torrid pace. So it's going to be a lot of fun to see where Freddie Freeman finishes and, of course, what impact he has on the Braves as they try to get themselves back into that October baseball thing that they very much enjoyed last year. So the all-star honor for Freddie Freeman, not altogether surprising. In fact, not surprising at all. Braves shortstop Dansby Swanson is one of the many teammates who gets a firsthand look at just how talented their first baseman is night in and night out. He's so good. <laughs> I mean, I, there's not, I mean, you can just write that, just quote that. He's so good because there's nothing really else there is to say about it. He hits the ball to all parts of the field, lefty, righty. It doesn't matter who's pitching. I mean, it's amazing. It's incredible. Just glad he's on our team, you know. So congratulations to the Braves All-Stars, Freddie Freeman and Ronald Acuna. And we'll find out soon what Braves players will be added as reserves. Quite a few others have a case. Swanson, certainly one of them. Ozzy Albies, Mike Soroka. We'll see who all might get the call to join Freddie Freeman and Ronald Acuna Jr. on the National League squad. And before we move on, let's take a look at the starters for both the National League and the American League. We'll start with the NL. You know Freddie Freeman's at first base. Your second baseman is Cattell Marte of the Diamondbacks. Javier Baez, the Cubs shortstop, will get the start. And Nolan Arenado will be on the left side of the infield playing third base. He of the Colorado Rockies. In the outfield, I told you it's Yelich, Acuna, and Bellinger. And behind the plate, it'll be Wilson Contreras for the National League squad. On the American League side, Carlos Santana found his way back to the Indians and to the All-Star game. He'll be starting at first base for the AL. The Yankees' DJ LeMahieu is the second baseman. Jorge Polanco of the Twins will get the start at shortstop. At third base, it's Alex Bregman, who is one of three Astros in the starting lineup. Behind the plate, it'll be the Yankees' Gary Sanchez. And in the outfield, it's Mike Trout of the Angels, George Springer of Houston, and Michael Brantley of Houston as well. And your DH for the American League is Hunter Pence, who's having a resurgent year with the Texas Rangers. So some very deserving honors for those men. And the all-star voting for the starters is all done. And now we'll see how both leagues will round out their rosters as they get ready for the all-star game a week from Tuesday. That's July 9th up in Cleveland. The other big Braves news on this trip, of course, is Dallas Keuchel. Welcomed into the Atlanta rotation. He took two turns, the first of which came against the Washington Nationals. And that, for Keuchel, was his first start on a major league mound since the playoffs in 2018. So since last October, and he returned to action against the Washington Nationals on Friday night. That was June the 21st. Five innings of four-run ball for him. Three of those were earned. Eight hits, no walks, three strikeouts, one homer allowed, and a couple of hit batsmen for Keuchel as he was probably... Knocking off the rust a little bit still, even with a couple of minor league starts and all those sim games, getting yourself back into that major league form and what he's accustomed to every fifth day against the best competition that you'll find, there's going to be a little bit of an adjustment period for him. But the stuff seemed to be there. The two-seamer was looking good. The ground balls were there for him. And we saw even more of him in his second start, which was a winning effort against the Chicago Cubs. So after he took that loss against Washington, Keuchel came back with five and two-thirds innings of three-run ball, eight hits, three walks for him, a couple of strikeouts, a couple of home runs allowed, and kind of an oddball delay thanks to some lightning and some bad weather in the area. Braves picked up the win 5-3. to three. Keuchel got himself into the win column. 
even things up at one and one through his first couple of brave starts. Let's hear from Atlanta's new left-hander on what it means to join this Braves rotation and this red-hot Atlanta team. The Braves were the team I grew up watching and such a rich history. And I mean, this group is could be just like the division winners and the World Series winners. So I'm just happy to be on board. And you know, I was hoping to go a little bit deeper in the game, but you know, we can make some adjustments. Following that first start against the Nationals, Keiko was already looking at and sizing up what was working for him, what wasn't working for him, and what adjustments he can make to get on track moving forward. I'd like to get ahead uh, a few more guys, especially with the breaking ball and maybe the changeup. You know, the two-seam cutter combo was really working tonight, and that's kind of my bread and butter. But just kind of playing the back-and-forth rocking chair game with the changeup felt pretty good with it. But you know, some of the scouting reports and past at-bats I've had with a few of those guys, their willingness to go the other way was greater than I expected tonight. They weren't really willing to go the other way tonight, so it was kind of a cat-and-mouse game. And I got burned on a few pitches, but other than that, you know, we'll lock it back in and continue to try to fill up the strike zone and, and get some early outs. So Dallas Keuchel came out of his return start looking to build on that and maybe make some improvements. His second start came against the Chicago Cubs. He did pick up a win, did pitch into the sixth inning, but that weather delay might have caused him the opportunity to have a little bit more normal day at the office. All things considered, though, the Braves picked up the victory, and Keuchel felt good afterwards. Feels good anytime you can get a win. Uh, I mean, the boys put it on early, so it was about as easy as, as I could draw it up. But, I mean, it's a quality lineup over there, so I had my work cut out for me. and Just a little inconsistent with the breaking pitches still, and I kind of tunneled myself into a two-pitch mix. So uh, third time through the order, I really had to battle, and I was just fortunate to get through the fifth. But, but early on, I felt really good, so that's a, that's a plus, you know, kind of combining last start into this start. But need to tweak a few things and, and tidy a few things up, but I think we're well on our way to where I want to be. So Dallas Keuchel came out of that outing feeling good about it and is no doubt looking forward to his next time out on the mound. And, of course, the arrival of Keuchel was supposed to provide a boost for the rotation. I think it's going to do that, but the demotion of Mike Fultonevich, that is keeping the starting five in a state of flux. Fulte had one of the roughest outings of his career last time out. He was charged with eight earned runs in Washington and just four innings of work. And that's a game the Braves would come back to win by a 13-9 score over the Nationals on Saturday. But after the game, Fultonevich was optioned back to AAA Gwinnett to try to sort things out. Before we dive into what that move means for the Braves' rotation, let's hear from Mike Fultonevich following that start before he found out about being demoted. It's just frustrating. I mean, I got a 7 year on a first-place team. This is tough. 7 year on a first-place team. I'm battling every single night. And it's just, you know, it's just tough. I mean, you know, it's just the person I am. I'm going to wear that stuff on my sleeve out there, you know, especially when things aren't going my way. I mean, um, you know, it's just tough. You know, it's just it's all my fault, too. And it's not like I'm, you know, yelling that stuff. I'm just missing my spots, walking people. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to get mad at myself when I know I can get people out easier than I have been. So it's just, it just sucks. And just end the story. It's safe to say that this season has not gone the way that Fultonevich nor the Braves were expecting it to or hoping that it would following his all-star campaign a year ago. Mike Fultonevich was looked at as the Braves' number one starter coming into the season, but of course his season didn't start on time because the elbow was barking at him in spring training. He's got bone chips in there. It's something he's pitched through last year and something that he may have to continue to pitch through and managing that pain and how that might affect him mentally is all part of what he does every fifth day. Fulte a season ago was 13-10 and 10 with a 285 ERA and 31 starts and struck out 200 batters. In 11 starts in 2019, he's 2-5 and five with a 637 ERA, 
59 and a third innings. He's already allowed 16 home runs. That's one fewer than he allowed in 183 innings a year ago. Strikeouts are there, but not at the same rate of a season ago. And a big reason why is that he just hasn't been able to get things on track, I think, mentally, emotionally, and physically. And all of that has kind of created a perfect storm that's kept Mike Fultonevich from being able to go out every fifth day, cut loose, and really be able to pitch. If you haven't already seen it, Jeff Schultz of The Athletic had a great article that came out on Friday. Make sure you have a subscription so you can get to that. Schultz goes in-depth with Fultonevich on the ups and downs of his season, the demotion to AAA Gwinnett, what it means, what he's going to try to accomplish, what effect the elbow has had on him, both physically and mentally, the decision not to have off-season surgery. It's a fascinating read. It's a really in-depth dive, and it gives you, I think, a very good and candid look at what exactly Mike Fultonevich is battling with as he tries to get himself back on track. We all know, we can tell, Mike Fultonevich is aware of it too. He's a very emotional player. And sometimes those emotions can work against him. So it's all going to be part of trying to get everything going in the right direction again. And he's going to try to get that done at AAA Gwinnett moving forward. It's a long season, and the Braves are hoping that these answers will come to Fultonevich and he can get himself back into the Atlanta rotation, something manager Brian Snitker discussed following that start against Washington. It's time to push the reset button and try and get back going. I mean, it wasn't working here. It's been a struggle. Seems like all year. Nothing ever got going for him or he got any flow or rhythm or anything like that and it's just sometimes you got to take a step back and and um, I felt like after the the game and how it transpired and everything at the times now I mean instead of waiting we'll get him down there hopefully he can get on a roll get things going get confidence back get guys out and get back to his old self so Mike Fultonevich has to triple a for a while to try to get himself back on track meanwhile for the Braves that final start that he made was a 13 to 9 comeback win one of Atlanta's best of the season Dansby Swanson's go-ahead three-run homer in the eighth inning put Atlanta on top to stay as they piled up those nine runs in the final three frames. This club we've seen time after time fighting to the very last out, coming up with the late-game heroics, and that's something Swanson credits to a consistent approach for the team. We talk so much about staying in the moment and being in the moment and continue to try and put together professional at-bats, and I think that's kind of why you know we don't look back or look ahead on anything after either, you know, because... We just kind of roll with, um, you know, staying uh, where our feet are. Another big happening for the Braves this month has been the resurgent Josh Donaldson. We've seen him flashing the leather, also swinging a big bat throughout June as well. And before a relatively quiet series against the Cubs, he was hitting home runs in bunches and started delivering some big hits for the team. And that all-around game doesn't just get noticed by the guys in the lineup, but also newcomer Anthony Swarzak, who's helped stabilize the Braves' bullpen, which is something we'll talk about a little bit more in a moment, and Swarzak in particular, but he's getting a very good look at just what Josh Donaldson brings to the table night in and night out. Donaldson, you know, just for me personally, he's been keeping me going. I mean, it's been the bunt plays, it's been the double plays. When I first got here, he made a big play just to his left, just ranging to his left, kind of stuck with me a little bit. You know, he just, he's unbelievable. The guy's all over the place. To be able to play with a guy of his ability, to be able to really take the game and change it, it's, it's unbelievable. It's almost like a basketball player does in basketball. You know, a guy gets a little itch, give him the ball. It's kind of the same thing with J.D. I mean, the guy can do anything he wants. I know right now the numbers are saying he's not putting together, you know, the season at the plate that he normally does. But when you look at what he's doing to help our team win baseball games every day, he's having an incredible year. So that speaks for itself. Josh Donaldson is one of the many Braves putting up some big numbers in the month of June. And this could be, as I said in my article over at FromTheDiamond.com, It could be the start of a turnaround and a return to that MVP form. 
We know he has that MVP award in his trophy case. Donaldson was seven home runs in 13 games prior to that Cubs series. And that power surge, if you start to look at what he's on pace for this year, he's in line for 30 homers. He can make a run at 40 doubles. He's in line to score 90 runs. Really the only thing that hasn't been occurring at his previous Toronto-level run production has been the RBI. But he didn't have a lot of chances, it didn't seem like, at the top of the order before the Braves made their lineup switch. He's had some opportunities in the middle of the order, but he's also hitting after Freddie Freeman, who seems to be driving in everyone who's on base in front of him. Either way, it's a good problem to have. Somebody's knocking in the runs. Braves are leading Major League Baseball in runs scored and home runs in the month of June. Donaldson's been right in the middle of that, so we'll see if he's able to continue that upswing as we head toward the All-Star break and maybe parlay that into a big second half, which the Braves would be most happy to see right behind Freddie Freeman couple of other quick Braves notes before we turn our attention to the business of baseball, and I welcome Maury Brown of Forbes into the show. But when we talk about this Braves lineup, and as I went through that article, and again, it's the Braves offense rolling at the halfway point. You can find it over at fromthediamond.com for a deeper dive in some of these stats. But as I talked about in the article itself, it's hard to look at this lineup and not be immediately drawn to the dynamic duo of Ozzie Albies and Ronald Acuna Jr. Or is it Ronald Acuna Jr. and Ozzie Albies? Either way, those two men are driving forces in this Braves lineup that one through eight is proving itself to be a very, very tough collection of customers for opposing pitchers. Look at what Acuna is doing thus far. He's on pace for over 30 home runs, could make a run at 40. He's in line for 100 runs knocked in, 100 runs scored, and 20 stolen bases. As I talked about on Twitter on Friday morning, the last Braves player to do that in a single season was Chipper Jones, and that came in 1999 a year that Chipper won his MVP award. Prior to Chipper, the only other man in Braves history that had 40 homers, 100 runs knocked in, 100 runs scored, and 20 stolen bases in a season, that would be Hank Aaron, who did it twice, including the first season in Atlanta in 1966 and in Milwaukee in 1963. If Acuna is able to pull that off, he's going to join some pretty elite company in Braves history, and he could be doing all of that at the tender age of 21. So pretty scary to think about what his career trajectory could be if he starts putting up seasons like that on a regular basis. And while Acuna has gotten himself on track hitting at the top of the order, I think for Ozzie Albies, moving down in the order might have taken a little bit of pressure off of him. He's really stabilized things from the left side of the plate. He's swinging the bat much better against righty pitchers. He's still punishing left-handed pitchers. He's putting together a good season. He's in line to hit 20-plus homers again. He could score 100 runs. I mean, he's one of quite a few Braves that could do that, and he's proving that last year was no fluke as well. So, Both of those guys, all-star worthy. We've seen Acuna has already gotten the honors. He's going to be starting for the National League. I would expect Ozzie Albies to be a reserve for the National League squad as well at the all-star game in Cleveland. Both those guys are playing a big role for the Braves, not just on the field, but also with the energy that they bring in the clubhouse, in the dugout, and, of course, spilling it out onto what they can do between the lines. And Brian Snitker continues to enjoy watching both of those guys doing their thing each and every day. They feel like they've been here forever, but they're still learning things, and they're still learning how to do this. And, again, two very talented young players that are, you know, they get great on-the-job training every night they go out there. I love the energy. I love watching those guys play. I love watching them warm up. I love the energy in the dugout, the enthusiasm with which they play. They have fun playing baseball. I said this last year about him. What a novel idea, enjoying playing baseball, and they do. Those two guys definitely bring the energy and are kind of the heart and soul of this Braves team, and you gravitate toward those guys. Fans recognize those guys. But one group of players that may not be recognized walking down the street or 
Even walking into SunTrust Park most days would be the Atlanta Braves bullpen. This is a group that has been in flux all year long. He used that terminology to discuss what's going on in the Atlanta rotation. Well, this bullpen has seen its share of comings and goings as well. And one of the guys who came in and has led to a lot of the success this Braves bullpen has enjoyed over the last month or so is right-hander Anthony Swarzak. He was picked up in a trade with the Seattle Mariners just over a month ago for a couple of spare parts. Jesse Biddle couldn't find a way to consistently throw strikes and get outs, wasn't able to follow up his success from 2018. Arodis Vizcaino was injured, had shoulder surgery, and was going to be out for the year. But Alex Antopoulos took those two pieces, figured out a way to make the money work, and got Swarzak over from the Mariners, and the results have been outstanding. He's made 16 appearances in the 33 games the Braves have played since being acquired in the trade, and Swarzak's ERA is 0.54, 16 and two-thirds innings. He's allowed seven hits, only two of those for extra bases, one homer. He's walked six and struck out 20, so he's looking a lot like the guy that had a great 2017 season between the White Sox and the Brewers, wasn't good with the Mets at all last year, was shipped off to Seattle in that Edwin Diaz-Robinson Cano trade to try to get the money to work there. Well, those savings were passed right along to the Braves, again, for a guy that wasn't going to pitch again this year and another who just wasn't part of the bullpen plan going forward. So this acquisition has made a world of difference for the Braves. They've also been getting regular contributions from a steady group, including Sean Newcomb. A.J. Minter has come back from the minor leagues and looks to have solved a few of his command issues. If this group can get rolling and the Braves can add a couple of pieces going toward that trade deadline and prior to it, they have a chance to have a bullpen that will be serviceable. And this might come as a surprise to you given all the early struggles by the Braves' bullpen, but they now have the second-best bullpen ERA in the National League, fourth-best in all of baseball. The walks have started to normalize some. Still, you hate to see the free base runners, but that is not nearly as rough as it was over the first few weeks of the season. We've seen Luke Jackson step in, and despite some ups and downs, some bumps in the road, he is delivered for the Braves. So they've got the makings of a pretty good group. When you start to put all those pieces together, you got Swarzak, you got Jackson, you got Newcomb, you got Minter. Josh Tomlin's been pretty good as a long man. Tuki Toussaint has come in and thrown some good innings out of the Atlanta bullpen. There's still going to be a revolving door, and there's still room for improvements. But overall, the Braves relief corps has been able to stabilize, and it's a very good thing because Atlanta's starting rotation over the last month or so has an ERA over five, but the bullpen has an ERA well under three over the last month. So a lot has changed, and a lot will probably still have to change moving forward. We've seen Dallas Keuchel come on board. We talked about the impact here of Anthony Swarzak coming in as one of the stabilizing pieces of the bullpen. And, of course, Alex Antopoulos and company will continue to monitor for the right deals as we turn the calendar to the month of July. There is no waiver trade deadline this year. You have to get those deals done by July 31st. You can't wait around until the month of August and have that guy on your playoff squad if you can get there. So it's going to be a lot of fun to monitor all the deals because some of these division races, and I talked about this on last week's show, some of them seem like a foregone conclusion. When you've got an 8, a 9, a 10-game lead in the division, that could make quite a few teams sellers, and I'm sure there's going to be quite a few teams that are buyers that are either going to try to win their division outright or get into that wild card mix and punch their ticket to October that way. Either way, I expect there to be a lot of deals and more of a sense of urgency in the month of July than we've seen at any time in recent memory. So that's what's going on with the Atlanta Braves. Before we get out of here, I'll preview the upcoming games that lead us up to the All-Star break. But it's time to shift our focus to what else is happening in the world of baseball. And to help me do that, I want to welcome in Maury Brown of Forbes. You can follow him on Twitter at BizBallMaury. That's B-I-Z-B-A-L-L-M-A-U-R-Y. And I encourage you to do so. 
Maury, I know you've been a busy man, and I appreciate you carving out some time for me today. It's been a while since we've had a chance to really sit down and chat, but it seems like there's an awful lot of interesting things going on with the business of baseball these days. Well, first, Grant, it's great talking to you. Um, second, we do. I mean, there is an awful lot going on, um, and that's somewhat surprising. Normally, the business of baseball or most sports dies down a little bit during the season, but no, things are actually really pretty busy right now. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, and I want to start with a story that is unlike any I've ever seen when it comes to plans for baseball teams, and we're I think we're very much used to the, hey, we need a new stadium. How are we going to figure out how to make all those things happen? It, it happened in Atlanta here a couple of years ago, but in particular, one that kind of came across everybody's desk, and I'm sure uh, right on top of yours, where the reports that MLB is pursuing a plan that would see the Tampa Bay Rays potentially playing in two cities, spending part of their season as the Tampa Bay Rays, but the other part of their season up in Montreal. There's all kinds of hurdles and logistics and things that have to happen to get this off the ground. Maury, what was your read on this, and where exactly did this idea come from? Well, first of all, I mean, um, in some ways it's surprising, and it isn't. Um, I I don't think that anybody that's been following the race saga pretty much since Vince Namoli owned it, and really since the inception of the team, hasn't been aware that attendance has been an issue there. Um, many people will tell you that it, it has to do with the location. There are some questions around that. Um, I talked to former commissioner Bud Selig this past week, and I asked him about what he thought about Florida. Um, he says he was still waiting a couple of years to see whether this was really an ownership problem or a market problem. But in terms of whether I've ever heard of anything like this, where it's split basically half the season in two locations and seeking new ballparks, not in one, but both of those markets, it's unprecedented. It really is. The only thing that comes from remotely close was the last two seasons of the Montreal Expos before they moved to Washington, D.C. to become the Nationals. They did 22 games a season in Puerto Rico. Right. But that pales in comparison to what they're really looking to do here. It seems like this is going to open up a slew of things from travel and living expenses for players and personnel to newer, improved stadiums. Is this really the answer for the Rays or more of an experiment for both them and for baseball? Because it's going to be taxing in more ways than one on all of the cities involved. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of equate this whole thing, Grant, to, you know, everybody probably knows a relationship where there's somebody in their probably 30s and they've been dating for a long time. And finally, one partner or the other goes, you know, where is this relationship really going? And I kind of guess I look at it that way. I mean, the idea that these markets would make investments in ballparks for half a season doesn't seem very fruitful. Not at all. Now, the situation in Montreal, I think, is a little is different than what's going on in Tampa Bay. But one, the Tampa Bay politicians have basically said, you know what, you guys, you can build your own stadium if you really want it. And that's why we're in this position that we're talking about right now. Montreal, on the other hand, has been pining to get um, the Expos back, for lack of another name, since they left. And I think that they look at this entirely different. They look at it as like if we build the ballpark, right, and we get that thing in place, it's going to be hard if Tampa Bay says, no, we, we can't come through the ballpark, for them just not to move there. And I think that that's really where you're at. I mean, you're playing the game of chicken with two markets, but I think that the the hand is probably stronger for Montreal right now. It gives them a carrot to work toward getting the stadium built, which they've been trying to do now for a while. 
Yeah, this has been a big push for the Tampa Bay Rays for as long as I can remember. And I spent some time working in their organization on the minor league side of things. And they just opened a new spring training home in Port Charlotte. Sounds like that's something that could also be affected by this. And one of the interesting things I saw, and I believe it was, it might have been Brad Ziegler on Twitter. And of course, players are going to have thoughts about this because playing in two different cities and also playing all those road games is going to take a toll on the players and their families and all the uh, personnel that are affected by this as well. It, It just seems like there's a lot of things that are going to have to be lined up in order for this plan to not only get off the ground, but to stay up in the air for any amount of time, really, and to talk to players, I guess. And I don't know if this is a union thing or other folks that are going to have to come to the table here, but to get everybody in one accord to try to figure out how to make this thing happen. Yeah, and that's exactly true, all that stuff, Grant. I mean, look, you'd have to stipend the players. You'd have to figure out lodging, you know, and living quarters, right? I mean, you're going to ask your family to live in two different locations. I mean, it makes it crazy. The way that they're trying to soften this, the way the Rays have said potentially a way to deal with this, you mentioned Port Charlotte, and that's exactly what they would do. They would would move spring training into this new ballpark. So now the players don't have to travel down to Port Charlotte. You know, you could use that. But even that is a weak argument in my mind. No doubt. And you're talking about an entirely different thing. You're going to another country. There's all the passports. There's the traveling in and out of Montreal every time they want to do this. For half the season, I mean, it, it, there are just tremendous hurdles in it. And that's why I get back to this. I don't care what Stu Sternberg, the owner of the race, said. He said it wasn't about leverage, and I, I can't see how this is anything other than that. It really is about trying to get one of these markets to cough up a ballpark, and if one of them beats the other, the other one will just go, well, we're sorry, we, you know, we're just going to walk away, and then you'll move the team. They, they've said that they're not going to try and do this thing until at least 2023. Well, now you're four years away at that point from getting out of the lease that expires in 2027, and they could potentially buy out from underneath it before that, you know, so I just don't see how this true split market thing works. It just, it's so crazy and logistically for all the reasons you mentioned, and we could go on for another hour with other ones. I just don't see it working. Yeah. And that's, a, I guess my question, and I think you covered a little bit of it, but just so I'm understanding, you know, in terms of the long-term future of the Rays, we know about their stadium, their attendance issues and Stu Sternberg and the ownership groups before him, uh, this has been an ongoing source of debate down in the Tampa Bay area, but you do believe this could be a precursor to this team finally getting out of town, depending on how this whole thing plays out. Yeah, and there's some reasons for that. I mean, I mentioned the lease, and that's the biggest thing. I and mean, they just can't get up and move. And they still have to get they still have to get approval to play half the season there. So look, I mean, they can't leave now. They can't leave until really if Tampa Bay, St. Pete wants to get real serious about it, they lock them in until 2027 when that lease expires. They're never going to wait. You never want to wait until that day arrives to then go, all right, I guess we got to go out and find a ballpark. I mean, they would want to have that stuff done and worked on now. So that's where I think they're largely at. They're really trying to furl the ground to where they when they're at a position to get out from underneath that lease they could do so now on the other side of the coin and you mentioned this a little bit earlier i mean montreal some section of montreal anyway still has a dream of bringing baseball back after losing the expos back in 2004 we know the expos are now playing in washington do you see montreal getting baseball back in some form or fashion and and if it's not the rays are we going to end up maybe again going down that road where we start talking about expansion and realignment and all that good stuff well, yeah, I mean, they absolutely have been on the radar for expansion. I mean, I live in Portland, and it, it always seemed to make sense that if Portland was as far along as they are, 
Mm-hmm. Montreal continued down the path they were if the two markets went. They would be the prime expansion markets. That would kind of throw a wrench into it um, where you potentially might see, you know, Nashville or something like that. I'm hearing an awful lot about Nashville all of a sudden. So, yeah, I mean, it does alter that whole scope of things. But Rob Manford just said the expansion thing is probably a more longer-term thing to look at, and that may be 10 years out. For the situation in Montreal, I think the concerns that a lot of fans will say was, it wasn't like attendance was great there at the end when the Expos were there. And to that, I would only say, you know, certainly the strike never hurt. I mean, that hurt them so badly. They were in first place Um, heading into it. There was all this optimism. And then that all came crashing down. The prior ownership of Jeffrey Loria drove the market even further. But in speaking to former Commissioner Seelig, in speaking to David Sampson, who used to be the president of the Expos and then later on with the Marlins, the repeated line has always been that they could never quite get a broadcast deal and they could never find owners. Well, I think that all changes. Much like the situation in Washington, D.C. right now is on fairly solid ground. I mean, for those that don't know the history, they lost not one, but two franchises in right. the Senators to Minnesota and Texas. So, I mean, things change over time, and I think the situation in Montreal is in that position where if they get a good broadcast deal, they had solid ownership, I think that that largely changes. Now, I'm really interested to see how this all plays out. As you pointed out, the timeline for this we're looking at is probably, what, four years down the road, if not longer, and depending on the Rays stadium lease, who knows how this whole thing's going to play out. But just very interesting to see this kind of a plan even floated out there to get to the point where folks are talking about it in a public fashion as well, which is you would imagine a lot of this would be done behind closed doors before any of it came out to kind of be consumed by the public, but a lot of hurdles to cross. Meanwhile, some games being played a little bit further away than Montreal over the weekend as the Red Sox and Yankees are getting set to meet across the pond for a series in London, England. This, of course, a major milestone moment for Major League Baseball and for Rob Manfred. It's the first Major League Baseball games being played in Europe, in-season games in any way. Baseball, Maury, we both know this. It's a global game in one sense and, and in many others, but it still has miles to travel, I think, to get over some hurdles of being a true global sport. How big of a deal is this London series for Manfred and for Major League Baseball? I guess from the perspective of long-term growth, I think that it cannot be overstated how important it is for them. You know, the NFL has been playing games there for quite a while. Um, the NBA, all of the leagues really kind of look to try and grow themselves globally and from that you're basically trying to grow your market in places where you haven't been before um, the investment in trying to host the games is substantial i did a story on this i mean everything from the turf everything had to be done especially for just this event now they're going to do it next year so they get to reuse the playing surface um, they'll get to reuse the 102 lockers that they built i mean the clubhouse that they built from scratch um, for both home and away is, is remarkable. I just saw a video of it. So it's really something that they, they've made this investment. They, it's a long-term strategy for certain. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they did. They you know they had about 60,000 um, in seating capacity. They sold out both the games this weekend um, in under 30 minutes. So that's a pretty strong sign, you know, that it's, you know, while it's a novelty, I think, in, in England, um, that they're, they're trying to do something about it. You know, it's just incredible what they're having to do with this. They've really had to do the outreach to try and explain how the game is played instead of showing things like R and H for runs and hits and actually spelling it out. 
and there'll be in-game stuff for those that are newbies that have never seen a baseball game before on how the game is played. So they're trying to basically spoon-feed it to an audience that may not know the game very well. And let's be honest, I mean, baseball is not a really simple game to follow in no some doubt. ways. So it, it'll be interesting to see, Grant. I think that it's a great thing for the league to do. Um, it'll be really questionable about whether they get a return on the investment, but I just don't think that that's really in their minds right now. I think they're thinking about it more long-term and, and trying to grow the game globally. Now, some of the logistics you walked through for making this happen included building the field for the game, the clubhouses, all the things that go with it. It's at London Stadium, which I believe was an Olympic site at one point. Can you walk us through a little bit of what Major League Baseball had to do to get the field and all the things that go with it truly ready to go to make this whole thing a reality? Well, first of all, they, they couldn't rip up the field. The field is it's basically laid down on a soccer pitch, so everything is built on top of it. And so the field, the terracotta, the, the artificial turf, all of that was manufactured in France and shipped over. Wow. The foul poles had to be built, and they were, they were built in England, but they, those had to be built, and they weren't allowed to drill into the stadium floor, so they're mounted in, in cement pourings to allow that to happen. Um, they made, you know, the league went out and did, you know, when we have the president's race in, at Nationals Park, they created four characters. I can't remember who they have there, but it's like, you know, they used people that from, you know, English history that they would have in there. So they had that involved. That's great. Um, I mentioned the locker in the clubhouse. They built 102 um, lockers for the clubhouse so that when the Yankees and Red Sox arrive, and when you look at the video of it, you're like, it looks exactly like you might see in a facility built for, for Major League Baseball. They put that in place. So it's really remarkable. I mean, like I said, they, they've had to bring in special staff. Um, they have four sponsors for it, key sponsors, um, that will help offset some of this stuff. But once again, you know, I mean, all of that stuff, when you think about, you know, 144,000 square meters of field turf having to be built and shipped and installed, um, all of that stuff was done in three weeks. I and mean, the cost has to be extraordinary. Um, in millions, tens of millions, I think that it's absolutely possible that it, you know, was in the in the tens of millions of dollars um, to get this thing done. Now, Mario, you mentioned that these games sold out very quickly, both of them are for Saturday and Sunday. And I would imagine that part of the curb appeal of this, it's not a mistake that it's the Yankees and the Red Sox, probably, well, definitely the most storied rivalry in the history of this sport. I'd imagine that that probably could heighten the interest just a little bit. But at the risk of an Avengers pun, what is the end game here for MLB? Is this a, a tryout to have regular season games on a regular basis over in London? Or is this just something that they just want to see if it works and cross that bridge when they get there? Well, I think for the league, um, and specifically Commissioner Manfred and the commissioner's office, they'd like to see this happen all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's the reality of the players. And this is something that has to be um, collectively bargained. And that's why... This is a two-year deal. The current labor agreement expires in 2021. Do I think that it expands and they do it again? I, I do. I think that this will continue to happen. If they can make this, um, you know, enjoyable for the players, I'm sure that they're all being very well compensated for this extra trip, um, then then sure, I think that they will continue to do it. Even if they do this as a loss, Grant, I, I just can't see them not wanting to continue to do this. It would be very hard to sit back and look at the efforts that the NFL has made there or the, the efforts that the NBA has made in China and sit there on the sidelines. Rob Manfred, 
Um, as part of his legacy, really wants to grow the game um, internationally. He believes that it's a an, a uh, growth industry, which means you know that's not just money. They we've talked about expansion stuff like that. I think that he really wants to have that as part of his legacy. And I think that getting a foothold in Europe and having that on his resume is a large part of this. So. I, I don't see it going away. I think the only matter is how much does it really take to get the players to buy off on it. And if they've done it, you know, for two years in a row, um, I, I can see them continuing to try and do this again. It'll be fascinating to see how the weekend plays out for the Yankees and the Red Sox going across the pond to play in London in the middle of the season. Certainly uh, uncharted territory for them and for Major League Baseball in general. So some history will be made. And, of course, we're coming up on the All-Star break, which is always fun for folks. So maybe they'll get a chance to kind of rest up and recharge their batteries a little bit from their international travel in the midst of the season. Maury Brown from Forbes, appreciate all your time. Let us know uh, what are you working on uh, currently and what can we be looking forward to as we reach that midway point of the baseball season? Well, I just published a story on uh, expanded safety netting in baseball. I mean, granted, it's not surprising that we're, we're seeing a lot of injuries right now. It's just got a lot more um, press coverage. Um, I talk about the five clubs that have expanded upon that. I talk about the injuries of both the minor league and major league level and, and the fact that I really think that baseball needs to, you know, quit being so reactive and be more proactive around this. Um, I'm going to look at the television ratings for baseball and see how we're doing at the break. You know, attendance is down. It'd be interesting to see how television ratings are. So it's largely a lot of that at this point in time. Well, I appreciate your expert opinion and all of your expert work to help school some of us who may have a little bit of trouble following along with some of the business trends and the ramifications and all of the things that go into behind the scenes to making the sport profitable because, of course, that does affect the product in more ways than one. Maury, appreciate all your time and look forward to chatting with you again soon. Well, Grant, I really enjoy talking to you every time. Make sure you have me on again. I really enjoy it. All right, and my thanks to you again. That was Maury Brown of Forbes. He's been a guest of my podcast over the last four, maybe five years now. So always great to chat with him. And if you want to keep up with the business of baseball, make sure that you're following Maury's work. You can find him on Twitter at BizBallMaury. That's B-I-Z-B-A-L-L-M-A-U-R-Y. So thanks again to Maury Brown. And thanks again to you for listening. Before we get out of here, though, let's see what's coming up for the Atlanta Braves. Of course, they've got a weekend series to wrap up this road trip. They'll take on the New York Mets Friday, Saturday, Sunday, an off day on Monday. And then the Braves are working their way toward the All-Star break, which is, of course, a week from Tuesday. The All-Star game will be played. And some other All-Star-related news on Friday. Ian Anderson and Christian Pache, both big-time Braves prospects and both Mississippi Braves in the AA affiliate of the Atlanta club right now. They will be representing the National League in the Futures game. So something to keep an eye on. And the All-Star festivities from the minor league side of things as both Anderson and Pache are having tremendous seasons. And that is a great honor for them. And it wasn't too long ago that we saw Ronald Acuna Jr. and a gentleman named Mike Soroka also playing in the Futures game down in Miami. So keep an eye on Anderson and Pache in the Futures game. Before we get there, though, the Braves have to wrap up the first half. Not statistically. They've done that. They've already gotten past that 81-game mark. But coming up before the All-Star break is that series in New York. The off-day Monday, three games against the Philadelphia Phillies. That should be a hot ticket over at SunTrust Park. And then a weekend series of three games against the Miami Marlins before the All-Star break will be upon us. That will begin on Monday the 8th. So lots of important division matchups coming up for the Braves over the next nine games. Three against the Mets, three against the Phillies, three against the Marlins, and then the first half will be in the books, just like this episode of From the Diamond. As always, I appreciate you guys tuning in each and every week. Invite you to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. It's on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. 
Don't forget to leave those ratings and those reviews. Those are always appreciated, as are all of your retweets and your shares and all the things you're doing on social media. Love talking baseball with you guys and interacting and chatting Braves, whether they win or lose. We always have a good time doing that, so I invite you to follow along on Twitter. You can find the show at FromTheDiamond underscore, and then I am at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. And, of course, FromTheDiamond.com. That's where you can find all the articles I've been posting, including a new one this week about the Braves' offense and the trends that it has set through 81 games of the season. Lots of stuff to like there, and lots of cool facts, figures, and statistics for you to digest. Again, FromTheDiamond.com is where you can find that. Only about a week and a half before we get to the All-Star break, but we've still got plenty of Braves and Major League Baseball to talk about before the first half has come and gone. I look forward to talking about it all with you on the next episode of From the Diamond. As always, I'm Grant McCauley, and until then, so long, everyone.